Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. As a way of introduction, I would like to ask you a question this morning, and that is, how are you doing spiritually? How are you doing spiritually? Really, I, I, I want you to answer that question. Um, how are you doing spiritually? Just take a moment there and think. Don't worry. No worries. No one is watching you. Just answer the question in your mind. And as you answer that question, reflect deeply on your answer. It is just between you and God. I don't want you to give your answer and say it out loud. And of course, God already knows the answer. Now, before you do that, we need to establish some parameters. Usually when somebody asks, how are we doing spiritually? The first two things that come to, buy, to mind is Bible reading and prayer. Those are the two measurable factors by which we determine how are we doing spiritually. As a student of TMU, I'm assuming that your Bible reading is pretty good. But I wonder how much Bible reading would you be doing if you were at another school or already graduated? Let's be honest, most of your Bible reading has to do with completing an assignment for class, doesn't it? If you were a full-time lawyer, an accountant, an athlete, a doctor or a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad, would you be reading the Bible with intensity you are right now? Would you be reading it at all? Now, in terms of prayer life, do we have to go there? I mean, on a good day, we spend some time in the morning, like five or ten minutes, and that is being pretty generous. And those theirs are few and far apart from each other. Usually, we toss up a, a prayer while we're rushing down the hill from the dorms. Sometimes we do it out of guilt when we listen a sermon on prayer. And don't worry, this is not it, one. Or sometimes because we gave that Christian cliche when a friend told us about a trial they were going through. And we say, I'm sorry to hear that. I'll pray for you. So as soon as the conversation is over, we do a quick prayer because we don't want to be liars. But besides these guilt-driven prayers, it is not uncommon for you, for us, to go days without prayer. Now, some people right now are feeling uncomfortable by your spiritual condition, guilty. Others, hard to believe, are not bothered at all. But then you reflect upon how you're living right now here on campus, right? Your, your guilt is temporarily soothed by the fact that you're living a pretty moral life. You are not getting drunk. You're not having sex. You're attending church service every single Sunday. Not only that, you're serving in some capacity in the local church, maybe in the nursery, or maybe in the worship team. You don't smoke. 
you don't steal, you feed the impoverished people every other week, you hang out with them, you take a, a mission trip every year to a third world country and help paint the church, you stand for the voiceless and comfort the oppressed, you reach out to those shunned by the church, and as if it wasn't enough, you don't binge on Netflix. Right? Maybe The Walking Dead or Stranger, Stranger Things, right? <laughs> so, your, your Bible reading is, is going okay, pretty good. Your prayer life may need some serious improvement. But overall, you are a decent Christian. You, you, you love God. You love others. You're here at Master's. And I'm assuming that's, that's why you're here at Master's. So how do you score? How is your spiritual life? Maybe a 6 out of 10? Perhaps a 7? I guess it depends on how much value we give to prayer, right? So maybe more like a 5? Now, do you see the problem in this? Do you see anything wrong with this? By asking you how are you doing spiritually, I have reduced your entire spiritual life to your flimsy pursuit of God. We never factor in God's relentless pursuit of you. For instance, have you ever considered, have you ever stopped and think that when you fail to read the Bible, and listen to God, God never stops listening to you. When you forget to talk to God through prayer, God never stops talking to you. When, when we don't love our neighbor and enemies the way we ought, God never stops on loving you. Even when you're doing the things that you shouldn't be doing, God doesn't stop delighting on you. Now, I want to be clear. God doesn't delight in sin, but he delights in us even though we sin. And we have to understand that God's love is not based on what we do or don't do. It's based on who God is and what Christ has done for us. His love doesn't fluctuate. He, it, his love doesn't change when we perform well or when we don't perform so well. His love is an outflow of his nature. A God who loved us while we were still sinners. Right? Romans 5.8. So it is pointless to talk this morning about your spiritual life, and how well you are doing without first talking about grace. Because grace sustains everything in the Christian life. It's a driving machine behind everything. Now, let me be clear. I don't want you to understand me wrongly. I believe that Bible reading and prayer and many other things that we do or shouldn't do are very important. Our pursuit of God, as flimsy as it may be, is paramount to our Christian life. 
I don't, I don't believe in a version of Christianity that believes in and says, let go and let God, while just lounging around in our PJs waiting for God to act. I don't believe that. But the Bible is clear that grace must, must be the centerpiece of our spiritual life. It must be at the center. So without a rich understanding of grace, our efforts to become like Christ will fail. Without an authentic reliance on God's unmerited delight in us, we cannot follow a sinless Savior. Unless God pursues us, which He does, we simply cannot pursue Him. Do you understand that? With that in mind, then, I would, I would like for you to open your Bibles in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to meditate this morning on verses 9 to 10. The Word of God reads like this. For I am the least of the apostles. This is Paul talking. For I am the least of the apostles. And do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. It was not in vain. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet, not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you this morning, I ask you that you will speak to us, that you will break our hearts, soften our hearts to listen to you. Please, God, take away any distraction. In our minds, may we focus on you and you alone. You are our biggest priority. You are our biggest treasure. You are all for us. Lord, open our, our understanding this morning. Let us see the glories of Christ in the face of your word. We love you, Lord. And before we meditate on this, forgive us. Forgive us for any sin, unconfessed sin that we, we have done. We trust in your forgiveness because you, you pay the highest price for us. In your name we pray. Amen. 
For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I work harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I want you to understand two things this morning. And first is that grace is an experience of pardon. Grace is an experience of pardon. Unfortunately, in our circles, the word grace has lost its stunning beauty, its richness, as it has. Perhaps because we overuse the word grace. Grace has honestly just become another Christian buzzword. We use the, the word grace in flat ways, right? We, I mean, my students at seminary ask me for grace when grading their exams. They say, please, Lucas, show us some grace. But Divine grace is more than just leniency, more than allowing exceptions to the rule. Divine grace is, you have to understand this, divine grace is God's relentless and loving pursuit to save sinners who are unthankful, unworthy, and unlovable. That's grace. Grace is not just God's ability to save sinners. It's God's stubborn delight in his enemies, us. Grace means that despite our filth, despite the sewage running through our veins, despite our odd addiction to food, sex, porn, pride, money, comfort, and success, God desired to transform us into real ingredients of divine happiness. That's grace. If you think about it, grace is the most transformational word in Scripture. The entire content of the Bible is a narrative of God's grace, a story of undeserved redemption. From the beginning, going after Adam and Eve, to the end, the consummation of the times. And God in this story is unilaterally reaching his hand into the muck of this fallen world through the presence of his son to seek and save the lost. To seek and save the lost. Do you understand the power behind those words? Seek and save? Jesus, when he was on earth, he didn't just give gifts to the poor people who happened to be on his path. No. He hunted them down and showered them with gifts. Listen, Jesus shamelessly poured out his lavish favor on undeserving sinners of all stripes. Didn't matter who, of all stripes. This is why Jesus was attracted especially to Paul, to the Apostle Paul. In verse 9, we read, For I am the least of the apostle, and worthy to be called an apostle, because, what's the reason behind it? I persecuted the church of God. Out of a seal for, for the law and faithfulness to a vision of what he thought the nation of Israel should be, Paul believed that those who were not properly obedient to the law needed to be eradicated, erased 
from the face of the earth. Go with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 verse 13 says, For you have heard, and this is again Paul talking, of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. And tried to destroy it. As to seal, he later says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 6, I was a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. That's, Paul, that's Paul's testimony. Now, doing what he thought well or was doing well and pleasing to God became the cause of his greatest guilt because it was directed against, against God itself. He was not only persecuting the church of God, if you go with me to Acts chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 1 says, Meanwhile, Saul, Paul, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that, listen, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Verse 3. Now as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? And this is God speaking. Paul was fully aware that he was an enemy of God by persecuting the church. Unworthy of God's delight. Unworthy of God's love. But this is exactly what made him a prime candidate of grace. This is exactly why Jesus was going after him. Targeted, hunted, and conquered by grace, he was fully transformed from a zealous persecutor of God to a zealous laborer for God. And at no point, Paul was trying to meet God halfway by scooting close to the front row of an altar call. He did not merit anything except God's full condemnation and wrath. That's all he deserved. But grace, grace turned his life upside down. His salvation and in this case, in 1 Corinthians 15, as he's talking, his salvation and apostleship were a matter of grace and grace alone. And Paul knew that. By the grace of God, I am what I am. 
His whole existential being was summarized by grace. Now, if God's grace rescued one of the worst sinners in history, a man who by his own admission was a persecutor, a murderer of churchgoers, what makes you think that he cannot meet you in the middle of your brokenness and rebellion? Piper says, you are never too contaminated or broken to be rescued by the grace of God. God loves to save the worst. God loves to save the worst. So embrace divine grace. Embrace it. Even though grace will require you to face your own unworthiness, it never, ever makes you feel unloved. You can be sure that grace will put you in your place, just as it did with Paul, without ever putting you down. It will make you sadder than you have ever been, while at the same time giving you greater cause for celebration than you have ever known. That's grace. That's divine grace. Contrary to our expectations, counter to our assumptions, frustrating our sentiments, the grace of God has no leash. You cannot tame God's grace. It's untamed, unbound, and runs wild and free. And even when you embrace grace, you have no ultimate control over it. Do you understand that? Even when you embrace grace fully, you have no control over divine grace. It actually mocks your craving for control. Because you cannot make God lavish his delight on you. It does not matter if you're an outstander churchgoer for 60 years. You don't have leverage with God. He holds the prerogative to love you, not you. You cannot live your life all week in full obedience and then on Sunday morning grab God by the collar and say, God, you owe me. You can't. You can't. God loves you because of who he is and because of what Christ has done. His love is not based on what you do or what you don't do. You cannot earn God's favor, not twist his arm. You cannot do it. It's impossible. The grace of God is gloriously beyond your skill and your, and your technique to manipulate God. And once it finds you, once grace gets a hold of you, you cannot sing yourself out of God's delight. You cannot sing yourself out of God's delight. Now, grace is an experience of pardon, but the second thing that I want you to understand this morning is that grace is an experience of power. Grace is an experience of power. Because 
you have to understand this. Grace is so powerful that it keeps on going. It keeps on going. It is too wild to let us stay in love with unrighteousness. It's too free to leave us in slavery to sin. The power of God's grace is, is too uninhibited to not unleash us for the happiness of true uh, holiness to God. In other words, grace meets you where you are, but it doesn't leave you where you are. My point is, it enables and produces obedience. That's grace. That's why in, 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 in verse 10, verse, uh, Paul says, But the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect, was not in vain. And not only that, he goes on to say, I work harder than any of them, possibly referring to the apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God with me. Why? Because God's grace didn't pull out after saving Paul. It didn't walk away after encountering him. Rather, it kept chipping away at Paul until he produced obedience. That's grace. And listen, the Apostle Paul was criticized for giving people a license to sin by emphasizing grace too much. In Romans 3.8, we read that some people were slandering him by claiming that he was saying, why not do evil that good may come? And a few, few chapters later, in Romans 6, 1 to 2, Paul addressed this criticism head on, and he said, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Of course not. And frankly, I've also been pushing hard on the overlooked truth this morning that God pursues sinners of all stripes with radical grace. That there is nothing you can do to make God love you. And even though that's biblically accurate and true, I don't want you to lose sight of the whole picture that Paul is painting in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10, 15, verse 10. And what is that? What is the whole picture? That grace and obedience are in enemies. They're actually friends, partners. Grace and obedience are partners. That, that's what's lying behind Paul's words this morning. Grace doesn't cause you to sin. And it should never be a motivation to keep on sinning. Never. So, if you leave chapel today, when you walk out those doors, and you wonder, okay, how much can I now sin and still be right with God? You haven't truly understood grace. If you're contemplating whether you can sleep with your girlfriend or boyfriend, whether you can watch another porn video or cheat on that test you have after chapel, or think too highly of yourself, then you didn't get it. You didn't get it. If hearing about Paul's experience of pardon, how he was transformed, it's, it's stirring up an eagerness in you to reject God, and not desire an obedient relationship with him, then something didn't register in your mind. God will relentlessly chase you in love. But why run from him? 
Why run from him? You should rather run to him with all your might, trying your hardest not to sin. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, says Paul. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. What's his point? Work hard by God's grace. That's his point. Work hard by God's grace in your salvation. Because grace enables obedience. In other words, any ounce of obedience in your life is the natural, or I should say supernatural, byproduct of divine grace. Obedience, listen, it's not a choice. It's not up to you whether you obey or not. It's not optional. It cannot just be the icing on the cake because grace doesn't stop pursuing you when you get saved. Grace is too strong to leave you passive, too powerful to, to let you wallow and rejoice in the dirt of your sin. Grace will tirelessly continue on to push and push and push good works out of you. Grace is just that powerful and wild, and it produces the obedience that God commands. Now, this can be either terrifying, it can be horribly frightening, or this can be either extremely encouraging and comforting. Think about it for a moment. If, if divine grace produces the obedience God commands, then the lack of obedience reveals a lack of what? Grace. The lack of obedience reveals a lack of grace. So if, if, if there is no obedience, no, no running to God in your life, well, I wonder whether or not you have tasted God's grace, God's radical grace, God's transformative grace. But if you are indeed pursuing God, and you're trying your hardest to do so, listen, this is comforting. Because grace will carry you through the finish line. Grace will do it, not you. When you do something good, it's because grace is working in you. It's doing its job just as it was in Paul, working harder than any because the grace of God was with him. When, when you stumble, when you fall to the ground, grace will come alongside, pick you up, encourage you, and if needed, will carry you on its back. Just as Paul also experienced in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, when he wondered whether he would be able to endure his thorn in the flesh, and Jesus answered, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Grace doesn't just save you. Grace doesn't just forgive you of your sin. 
It also empowers you. It strengthens you to do the impossible, which is render, render joyful obedience to God. Now, let's go back to the initial question. But rather than asking, how are you doing spiritually today? Rather than asking that, let's put it differently. Let's ask, how is God making you more like Christ? That's the right question. How is God making you more like Christ? And notice that I'm not limiting this question to today only. I'm not saying, how is God making you today more like Christ? How is God making you more like Christ? For even before the foundation of the world, it was the untamed grace of God that jumped the bounds of time and space and considered you in connection with His Son. It was grace. It was in love to the praise of His glorious grace that God predestined you for adoption to Himself as a son or a daughter through Jesus Christ. Such divine choice was not based on foreseeing any good works on you. He chose you by grace. Not on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It was not because of your works, but because His own purpose and grace, which He gave to you in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So, while still a sinner, God deliberately, purposefully set his affection on you and on you. Deliberately. Even though you weren't delightful, God delighted on you. Although you were running from God, God was running to you. And believe me, he runs faster than you. So in the fullness of time, as Galatians 4 forces, that radical grace that transformational grace that was prophesied by the prophets to be yours came. He came. Christ came, dwelling among us. And you have seen his glory full of grace and truth. And in sheer grace, God united you by faith to Jesus, who is grace incarnate. And bless you in him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Only because of grace, unmeasured, boundless, free, wild, now your once dead heart beats and your once lifeless lungs breathe again. You are redeemed, you are forgiven, you are adopted. You are beloved, you are known, fully known, and he still delights on you. You are justified and the object of God's infinite affection. Do you get that? The object of God's infinite affection. Though you are prone to wonder, he's prone to pursue. Because as I pray, he paid the highest price to purchase you in Christ. And not only that, you're never alone. You're never alone. You were given the spirit of grace to be with you forever. Forever. And we're, when you are tapping to the spirit, 
Grace flows through your veins and compels you to obey, even when you don't have the strength to do so. Grace will empower you to obey. The effect of God's grace is so all-influencing, all-sufficient, and all-necessary that when it has done its work through the Spirit by the enablement of Christ's work on the cross, you say this, I worked, yet not I. It was grace. Such is the power and the scandal of divine grace. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all working together. This is grace gone wonderfully wild. It will chase you to the end. This is the answer to our question. This is how God is making you more like Christ. If you're a disciple of Christ, be more and more addicted to divine grace. For it is not only an experience of pardon or forgiveness, it is an experience of power to do what God commands. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we don't deserve it. We're sinners, and yet you loved us. We weren't delightful, and yet you set your affection in us. We sin, and still, Father, you keep on loving us. Lord, help us understand the nature of such radical grace. Thank you, because we don't need to impress you, Lord. You love us in Christ. Father, help us to cherish, embrace grace, never let go of it, because we might graduate from the Master's University, but we will never graduate out of grace. It's in your name that we pray.